0: Poetry tells, as constant as the truth itself. Without the lies and the false beliefs, where would we be? Where would
1: we be? Welcome to the State of the Theory Podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India.
0: And we are your Theory Doctors. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome
1: back. We've been away for Mm. we've been away for a few weeks. We've had a little summer summer break. break. A little summer break. Um hopefully we are now back. Though is this the moment to sort of warn our listeners that our output might be a little bit less regular from now on, Hannah?
0: Yeah, there's yeah th- well, there's a few things going on, obviously that our listeners know about global events, but yeah. they might not know about local community events.
1: yeah. Um, so semester is starting. I mean, that's one thing, right? so so teaching is starting, which makes makes this uh, more difficult than it' otherwise be. the The other thing that is happening in my life is we are expecting a baby next week. So that might make recording things a little bit tricky. You might there might be sort of more interruptions when we rec- record. I might have less time. So I'm I'm supposed to be going on paternity leave from from next week. We will try to record as much as we can when we can, but there might be there might be a, a drop off in the regularity of our episodes. Is that, is that fair?
0: I think so. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: How have you been, Hannah?
0: Well, you know, all the same, all the same. Uh, yeah, but the weather's nice here in Edinburgh today. It's been nice for the last
1: couple of days, which, you know, it's, it's it's a, it's a, makes a nice change. Uh, but yeah. certainly in Britain, COVID seems to be taking a turn for the worse. Uh we We may or may not be back in lockdown at some point soon uh hope things are okay wherever you are uh hope you you and yours are as safe and well as as possible. um what
0: are we talking about today Hannah today well, so we we went back and forth, didn't we because obviously we don't like talking about white ladies who pretend to be black. But they continue to insist on doing it. And we continue to have more observations about it. So this is this
1: is this is the fifth year I think that I have taught a master's class for our women writing and gender program in, in the University of St. Andrews. And the fifth year that the class has made has been a significant proportion of the class has been on racial desal, and every year I think there won't be anything next year to make this topical again. So I'm going—I'll I'll find another example. And every year there is something happens that makes it topical again. Um, so it looks like next semester I'll be doing this same class again, and I really wish I could change. Uh, so what has happened to make this bring this back in the news?
0: Uh, uh Professor Rachel Krug.
1: Jessica Krug.
0: Jessica Krug. Rachel Dolezal, Jessica Krug. Oh, white ladies look the same to me. Um, it, Jessica Krug, Dr. Jessica Krug, a historian in Washington, D.C., came out, she, a.k.a. Jess La Bombalera, aka Jess La Bombera. She her alter ego w- was you know of multiple varieties. This she's an academic, she's a historian, she's a historian of colonial Africa. She's written books on the topic.
1: Very um, well received books by all accounts. I, I I haven't read them. I don't know if you have. But they've, uh, they've been not. they've been received very well, so that, that should be said.
0: Yeah, and we're I think we're gonna come back to the academia angle of all of this because obviously it's near and dear to our hearts. Um but we're gonna we'll start with with the the race bit of this story, which um continues to to be fascinating and horrifying in turns and so she um has spent a number of years so she's developed her career as a historian of colonial africa at the same time she has been involved in activist circles particularly around gentrification um and kind of local local community organizing and she has has entered those activist circles as a woman of color And sometimes as a black woman, and it's, it's the way that she describes it and the way that other people who interacted with her describe it is that, that she would sometimes, sometimes say that she was from one particular community. And then other times she would say that she was from another particular community and, um, generally active, the activists who've worked with her and other scholars who've worked with her have kind of just taken her at her word and, um, Try to avoid what they call often call identity policing. So that's sort of how how she's managed to sort of build a reputation um, and, and
1: done very well in both places. Right? She's yeah. she's uh, she's an academic, but she's an until recently has been you know a tenure track job in a what what seems to be to me anyway. You know more about this than I do, but uh, a a high ranking institution. Whatever that might mean, uh, it's
0: an institution that anyone would would probably be fine working at. Yeah, you know. Um,
1: and uh, and she's also made a name for herself in in activist circles.
0: Yes.
1: Which is one reason why uh, the the revelation of her her lies was so shocking.
0: Yeah, and um, it's it, It's familiar in the sense there's a lot of um, similarities in terms of the, the, I mean, I know I'm aware of me using this term and I'm using it on purpose, but the, her performance of race identity is very similar to Rachel Dolezal's performance of race identity. It's tied to activism it's tied to social justice programs and it's tied to her intellectual work. Rachel Dole is always working um, for the NAACP. So um, there's a, there's a similarity to the performance, not just as black women or women of color, but also as activist black women and activist women of color. So that's really important to this story. I yeah,
1: and just—I mean, it—the—the—the the, the, And I think this is this is definitely true in the case of Jessica quirk. I think it's also true in the case of Rachel Dalziel. There is, and I—I—I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm deliberately using this word, but perhaps not as rigorous, rigorously as as I I might. But in the in the way they've lived their performance. Right, in the li- in the way they've lived their lie. Um there is something of the zealotry of the convert. Mm. Right? If you the the way if you read the, the medium post that, that Krug wrote in which she outed herself basically, uh there is there is a kind of self-satisfied holier than thou my politics is so much superior to those around me sense which which reminds me absolutely of the zealotry of the convert right the way in which she she talks about the 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 fact that her politics is a sort of platonic ideal that she has to live up to. And even when acknowledging her her lies, she's presenting her lies as I didn't live up to this completely self assured sense of superiority of my politics, which that is how converts speak about the faith, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting too. So she mobilizes all the words, right? So she uses all the jargon of kind of, um, you know, conservatives who make fun of liberals call it wokeness. She uses that jargon really specifically. So she, she throws around terms like um, I appropriated the culture and, I, you know, so it's, it's demonstrating that because she can use the language she has the authority to out herself on her own terms. It's really, it's really, really weird. It's a really interesting. And, and I think
1: thing. this, this gets to the, the, this, the heart of why this story has been so popular in the media, right? Like, and I don't even mean necessarily local media or academic media or American media. The fact that, you know, the BBC and The Guardian have done big articles on on Jessica Kirk. Is, a, I mean, that, that's, that's interesting. That's odd, right? Why, why do news editors sitting in London think that this story will be of interest to their readers? And I think that's a question that's worth exploring in a little bit more detail. You know, it it makes sense why we're interested. We're interested in the politics of race and the politics of academia. But that is, I would have thought, too esoteric for either The Guardian or or the BBC, but it isn't. And I think that interest says something about media understandings of and attitudes towards blackness.
0: Yeah. Yeah and and media understandings of 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 identity and particularly black identity.
1: Yeah so so uh Professor Priyamvada Gopal from Cambridge who I think we both follow on social media and uh whose work we we really like and has has influenced us. Uh she uh wrote on social media that Part of the reason why the, the media is so interested in sensationalizing this story is that it it does what you described her words do, Jessica Quagg, that is, her words do in terms of uh living up to conservative tropes about about liberal work academics, which is that blackness which has always been seen by conservative and even some liberal mainstream media as a performance that is being conducted in order to achieve some kind of gain right that is the the sort of the textbook definition of playing the race card right if you can if you can pretend to be black then there are advantages that are open to you that are not open to white people because white people are the real victims here so therefore when white people pretend to be black, it is obvious that they're doing so in order to gain some kind of benefit. Rachel Dolezal, uh, the Rachel Dolezal story, when it broke, a lot was made of the fact that she got a scholarship to go to a historically black college. Um, So again, this understanding that whiteness is, is, is a marker of victimhood, and the only way these white people felt they could make it, they could be successful is to pretend to be black because black people are pretending a performance of their blackness in order to to gain the benefit of positive discrimination
0: yes and the and the, that performance of blackness is um th- this there's a fictional story underpinning the performance of blackness that is one of victimhood. Um, I don't even think we even need to bother with the word oppression that the conservative take on this it, it, oppression is, it doesn't even come into it. It is purely just acting like a victim and feeling a sense of victimhood that, that leads to a feeling of entitlement. And that, that, that whole performance and this is where you you, you know can hear this the sort of argument that you know I don't see race, I don't see color, I don't think race is real um, Blackness as as a way of understanding or identifying an experience a lived experience or as a way of conceptualizing an identity isn't real it's purely a label so this is where the language of labels comes in and the I don't like labels, I don't, you know, da da da. Um and it that whole story can continue on in its merry on its merry way. Even though I think you know we have really there's really, really serious serious stuff going on, that story gets to continue.
1: forever. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to, to friend of the pod, Dr. Katie Muth as well, who uh, in a discussion with me described this phenomenon as a sort of blackness as political fraudulence, right? Like there is something fundamentally inauthentic. And I know obviously both of us have problems with, with the concept of authenticity, but if we take the concept of authenticity as given, then by that definition, there is something fundamental about the inauthenticity of blackness because it is, it is only being weaponized in order to gain an unfair advantage. Yeah. That's why it exists. And, uh, if, if those advantages weren't available, then the implication is we'd all just be people. We'd be human beings. There wouldn't be any labels and we'd all have a fair shot at whatever it is. Uh, uh, that we, that we are going for. Um,
0: yeah, I yeah. mean that's exactly, and, and I think I mean Katie's phrase is is perfect. Really, it captures this exactly. Um, and it's interesting that the there is a it, the Krug dolazol phenomenon is a sort of liberal side of the same coin, which is that in the white imagination and um, I'm speaking from experience here in the white lady imagination of what it might like to might be like to be a black woman. If you are trained to, to some extent in kind of liberal arts ways of thinking about the world, if you have a bit of background in, critical race theory or post-colonial theory or, you know, post-structuralism, if you have some concept of how philosophers have talked about identity and have talked about historical conditions that lead to present day experiences of oppression or marginalization or violence, you center that bit of the story, So, any of the other ways that people might form identities, any of the other ways that Black people might talk about the experience of being Black, or the ways that Black people might relate to each other and create communities around Blackness, those are not accessible to the white lady imagination because they don't live it, right? You know, we're not going to the cookouts and, you know, the way that that I think they want to, right? Liberal white ladies want to be invited, they want to be included, they want to be they want to be able to show off as Krug does in her story, they want to be able to show off their non-racist credentials. And they really really th- this is a really really important feature of their identity as an activist or as an academic. And that desire it's a it, it kind of is a drive and a drive to be included and to be part of the club but for them the only the only feature of the of being part of the club is being oppressed mm. or experiencing racist violence or racist marginalization there's nothing else there's nothing else that they can they, they can conceptualize with any kind of like reality or or experience so So you start with that experience and then get yourself into the community and then you can get bits and pieces. And so the sort of the building of a fraudulent identity is rooted in, in, you know, how do I, how do I pretend and live the experience of of oppression based on being black, which of course is super weird and creepy. So
1: playing devil's advocate for a second how and i think this this gets to a more fundamental question about critical theory where, which we might do an episode on in the future we've, they've, we've we've been talking about this for a while but given what we know about both performance and performativity the differences between the two given we know that you know theory tells us that identity is performative what constitutes a fraudulent identity
0: well this is this is a question isn't it and this is a question for people who work on identity
1: yeah because you know like we we don't want to we don't want to talk about sort of authentic blackness we don't want to talk about essentializing blackness we want we want to we want to open up the concept of blackness in all its various ambiguities and 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 contradictions and all of all of that but we also know that the al quag effect is 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 an example of fraudulent blackness so how can you have fraudulent blackness without authentic blackness
0: yeah, I mean it's I think the idea of performance and performativity, if you center that that particular critical theory concept, and I think this is where the media stuff comes in, because the media it for kind of obvious reasons because of how the media works, centers performance and performativity as the both the the maker of an identity but also the arbiter of an identity and questions on kind of all, all sort of ends of this the political spectrum revolve around this who on the the kind of the more liberal side who has the right to perform an identity who is allowed to perform an identity um and and white women have often been given a lot of leeway here. So this is where blackface appears in fashion. It explains Kim Kardashian and the, the Kardashian-Jenner family's exploitation of blackfishing, which is the idea that that white women wear and appropriate um, aspects of black aesthetics in order to make money. Um, th- that That it hinges on a discussion about who can authentic, who's authentically allowed to perform blackness without it being exploitation. And then on the right, it's a, it's about, you know, performing blackness is, is always for self gain. It's always for, but they all, they all take at it at the base level that performance is the key to understanding the identity or for identifying an identity. That's circular, but you know what I mean, but I guess if you th- if if we think of identity as um, not performance, you have to start looking around for other tools or other lenses for understanding how people make sense of themselves and and that's
1: dodgy right because the tools the tools that have been handed down to us include think places that we we wouldn't want to go to you know like genes like you know like it's it's the the other options if we don't think about identity as as performative the other options aren't Nice. They aren't aren't
0: good. No, and and they're fictional. Yeah, and you know, in a lot of ways, the yeah. the idea of race science is, you know, it's been debunked many times by many clever people.
1: I mean, I, I, m- my sense is this is this is a question we're going to have to come back to because this is a question that is about identity but but it's it's also about critical theory more generally because and and this is this is a, a theory question that i've been i've been wrestling with in my own mind for some time which is how can you hold on to the concept of truth and falsity while questioning the the existence of an absolute truth right whether this comes whether this is about identity, whether this is about history, whether this is about ethics—how how do you do that? Do, we 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 are suspicious of anything that claims to be truth with a capital T for very understandable, important, uh, essential reasons. But how do you say that, for example, you know, the the truths and truth like there might not be such a thing. As a truthful, with a capital T, vision of history, but let's say Donald Trump's vision of history is wrong, is false, right? Now that that's a that's a more fundamental question that we're going to have to grapple with at some point. But for the moment, I'd like to go back to the point you were uh, you raised about cultural appropriation and and how the the tools one has at one's disposal to construct one's identity. Um, because the other element of this, which is of interest to us, is the fact that both Dolizel and Krug were academics, our academics. Um, and what do these two stories then tell us about the way our industry conceptualizes the relationship between us and our work? Yes. So. Yes. If we, if we use us as an example, which is what we tend to do, we both work on partition, among other things. You are white, I am not. Now, the fact that you, you we are of different racial backgrounds, we have different lived experiences, we have different uh, gendered experiences, national experiences, so on, all of that affects the kind of work that we do, affects the the way we write and what we write the way we research and what we research and one of the things we are going to have to think about is how do how do we account for those differences without claiming that one of us is more entitled to speak about partition than the other Right so my experience of growing up in a partition family aff- affects the way i think about partition and write about partition but doesn't make my views of partition any more authentic than yours
0: Yeah well i mean the um it's interesting because we've talked a lot about this recently i think with in connection to South Asian studies, which is the kind of, we both aren't, I don't think we describe ourselves as being core kind of South Asian studies scholars, but we both have a stake in the discipline of South Asian studies. We kind of publish there, some of our um, our colleagues are in South Asian studies, and it's a, it's an area that we're both members of, but not solely kind of central in. And South Asian studies as a discipline, like other social sciences or other um, disciplines that bridge the social science humanities gap, geography is one of those, but so is anthropology and sociology. Um, the discipline has a colonial history. Um, it, it exists because of colonialism. It exists in its, in its guise and, you know, because of colonialism. There are colonial relationships at play, um, certainly between the institutions that everybody works at, for one, you know, um, getting scholars from the subcontinent to the UK for conferences is really difficult now because of racist visa programs and that kind of thing. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of ways that this manifests. But it's really, really interesting how a discipline that is, you know, decades old is now Part of more recent debates about who gets to do research on what? Yeah, and and that that connects
1: Yeah, that connects precisely to the Dollezal Krug story because I I am not prepared to accept that their their embracing of blackness, or rather their their pretense that of their own blackness has anything to do with attempting to get ahead in life because that doesn't work for obvious reasons. But I am prepared to accept that it their pretense of blackness is in part coming from an understanding that they that their research on quote unquote black subjects African studies, colonial, postcolonial studies, however you define it, that work would seem to would be seen to have less value if it didn't come from scholars who identified as black and who were identified as black.
0: Yeah, because Krug, you know, she could have written those books and and everyone knowing she was white and the books would have been the same.
1: And it's 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 not it's not as if there is a lack of white scholars working in these areas. no. You know,
0: you get, if you do, if you, if you do critical historical research, you learn how to read the archive against the grain, right? Like it's not, there are, we have tools to, to, to write decent pieces of historical writing. You know, it's not, it's, it's really interesting because there's an element of experiential expertise. And I think this, this is a type of expertise that has become quite popular in certainly in, in like social science research that happens in development contexts, for example, where you do participatory research. Um, there's a there's a desire to say, to talk about research hierarchies being broken down so that a, a kind of a white researcher working with a community of people who may not be white can do participatory research and the power imbalance will be mitigated or something, right? This is really popular in the eighties and nineties and is still a feature um, of of lots of research projects. But what comes along with that is this concept of positionality, um, which comes out of critical theory, but gets gets mobilized in a kind of instrumentalist way in, in, research projects in development studies and in sociology and anthropology and geography, et cetera. Um, And the idea is is to do exactly what you're saying, which is to to examine critically but also rigorously the ways that our selves are part of the research that we do, part of the work that we do. But it gets – I think because there's this fear that – that your position limits or inhibits or denies authority or denies a right to speak or denies authenticity in order to get around that, if you have the privilege to, you pretend to be the thing that gives you the authority yeah, rather I'm, than being a white lady who does research.
1: Yeah. I'm, I've, I've seen it. I've seen it cut both ways, right? Where I've seen, Uh, and and heard of especially young Black scholars who are working on, let's say, slavery, who are told by senior white academics that your work has less value because you can't be expected to be objective and dispassionate about this. So that's one way of it being policed. The other way of it being policed is precisely what you just said, where you are you are a white person. You can't, you haven't lived this, this experience of partition or whatever, and therefore you shouldn't be allowed to work on partition. And then there is a third way this flips all, all with the same underlying logic, which is, Oh, you are a, you are a BIPOC academic. You must be working on race or post-colonial studies, which I've also experienced multiple times. Um, and all of these, these approaches, even though they're, the politics of them might, might be seen to be diametrically opposite, all come to the same point, which is they, they represent an, an incomplete and unhelpful understanding of the relationship between us and our work. Because we need to, as an as an industry as an as a as a world as a as a sector however you decide describe it we as academics need to need to come up with ourselves initially and then need to be better at teaching our students to account for the way their subjecthood affects their work without it ending up in a place where someone doesn't have a right to speak. Do you see what I mean? Like, we need to find a way of a white person saying, as a white person, I need to be able to speak on blackness, but I need to do that with an understanding of how my whiteness is affecting this. Yeah. And I would have expected, or I would have hoped, that. In the world of critical theory, anthropology, history, English, with all those subject divisions and the differences between those di- disciplines in mind, I would have hoped that we would be more advanced here than we clearly are.
0: Yeah, well, and, and in fact, a, a lot of um, a lot of academia has has embraced this way of thinking has kind of um, appropriated some of this way of, of identifying people and identifying research and thinking about authority and, um, and voices and work. It's, it's really, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, especially because a lot of the disciplines, I mean, it's certainly our disciplines, there is, an expectation that you do engage with your own subjectivity and its relationship to your work. So, I mean, mine, the way that I talk about working on partition is that white people have a responsibility to know and understand the violence of colonialism. And they have a responsibility to teach each other about the violence that Britain, the United States, France, Germany, Belgium enacted around the world in the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries, that that is, that that's really important. Um, And that's how I, when I get asked this question, because I do get asked this question, um, you know, what, what gives you the right to study partition? That's what I say. You know, the thing that I study most is is how white people were doing bad shit. But I have to have that answer ready.
1: Mm.
0: You've never asked me that, which is interesting. We never really talk about, talk about this. Um, no,
1: because I mean, I guess I, I mean, the the time to ask would have been when we first met, but since then I've known enough about you to know that that's what your answer would be or, or something, something similar to that. Um, and of course the 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 flip side of that that question is the more self aware work that comes from white scholars about colonial violence the the more bipoc scholars can feel able to do other things right like if we if if the if the entire responsibility of studying the legacies of colonial violence falls on the far smaller cohort of BIPOC scholars, then it is harder for someone like me, not that I'm, I'm doing this, but for someone like me to, to claim the right to study T.S. Eliot, for example. You know, like wh- yeah. why, why should the expectation be that I have to do post-colonial studies? Because that's a question I've, or, or a, a demand that I have experienced implicitly. Where you know someone like you must be doing postcolonial studies. Why, why aren't you doing that? Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Why are you Why are you studying this other random thing? Yeah. When clearly that thing must matter the most. to
1: Exactly. You. Exactly. And there is a clear line of connection for me between between the way we police the kind of work that each of us is allowed to do or expected to do uh, with the the desire Mm -hmm. or the need to fabricate a, a, a past for yourself, which gives your work more authority.
0: Yes. It's a really disturbing thought that we created Krug. We did. I think we did. But we did. I think we did.
1: Um and I think the, the I mean the issues that are raised by these stories are are wider than the stories themselves, but I think it it reinforces for me a, a need to be more critical about critical theory than we have been, I think. Is that a good point to stop? I think it is. I hope that's been of interest. Uh, Let us know. Let us know what you think. Let us know how your work affects who you are and how who you are affects your work. Um,
0: Yeah, and how other people read you.
1: Yeah. Um, Look after yourselves. Stay safe wherever you are. And we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode.
0: I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick.
1: And I have been An India Rich
0: You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H Fitz.
1: And me at Dr. Anindia
0: R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors.
1: Our music is provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State Where of the Theory.
0: Thank you. Be? Where would we be